not so many of us tonight because, of course, this is an extra, it's not a program, it's the extra, this will be Yes, because I was late today. I, yes. I couldn't do this lecture when it was um, announced. But we are extremely fortunate to be among people who are going to hear it. So well, I should say no more. Well, thank you, um, Kathleen, for, uh, for for this for this extra slot, this extra lecture. It would have been very sad if. <coughs> If I had not uh, uh, been able to to talk about Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, uh, especially because I have spoken of uh, Swami Vivekananda, and not to talk about the Guru uh, after having talked about about his disciple would have been very inappropriate. So I'm very grateful to to you, Kathleen, and to and to Stephen and others for for making this possible. And I'm glad we are an intimate uh, group. And uh, I have to say this, that that this, uh, to remind myself, and this is really the, uh, not the last uh, lecture, but the, the last lecture on, on, a, on an Indian, modern Indian sage. The next lecture will be on Om. But this year, 1993, is very important for for many of us in India, especially for all Indians, because this is the centenary of Swami Vivekananda's uh, first visit uh, to America and to Europe. And he was the uh, he was the great teacher from India in modern times, who spoke in uh, in a world uh, language in in English, so that it was possible for him to to speak to. To the Western world without the necessity of, of translation. And but for his example, it would really be very difficult for people like myself to, to venture out to speak on spiritual matters in, in the English language, which is not our language. But we are very grateful in India that it is possible for us, however imperfectly, to communicate with others in this language, some of the great truths which, which India has uh, inherited, not which she is a trustee. And this is her greatest responsibility towards the future, I think, to, to preserve this teaching, which is both ancient and quite recent, contemporary. And to transmit it to everybody both in India and outside India, in a variety of ways, faithfully and yet innovatively. That's very important, I think, because this is a, a, a living truth, and you cannot put a living truth into a cage, into, into a formula merely, <coughs> into, into one kind of theory merely, or even in one tone of voice. So there has to be both gravity and, and humor. There has to be both uh, uh, scholarship and, and, uh, and liberation from scholarship. There has to be a sense of, of the importance of this for our world 
in the last hundred years. Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa died in the year 1886. And in 1986, J. Krishnamurti died, another great teacher of modern India. So that's exactly 100 years between the, the deaths of these two great teachers. And during these 100 years, they've also um, appeared on the scene sages like Ramana Maharishi, Mahatma Gandhi, Sri Aurobindo and others. But for me to speak for myself without Gandhi of course they would not be independent. India I don't think so. But and that's important. But without Ramana Maharishi, Ramakrishna, Paramahamsa, they wouldn't be spiritual in there. So the political independence, which was won for India, and the grace of God by uh, Gandhi, is very, very important because you can't teach spiritual truths if you're a subject nation. You can't, can't pretend to teach this. Nor, of course, if you are an unjust society. So, I think the deepest reason why India must remain free as a nation and just as a society is this. But otherwise, our greatest gift, the gift of spiritual inheritance, we would not be able to share with credibility. This is the deepest reason why India must remain free and just. Not merely because justice and freedom are important virtues, of course they are, but because without them, it would just not sound right to talk about spiritual liberation or Advaita, non-duality. If there is iniquity, if there is cruelty in Indian society, or, or if the Indian nation were to cease to be free in some way. And this, this deepest gift in, in modern times in India has been the gift in my to India and the world of these two sages, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa and Ramana Maharshi. I had occasion to talk about Ramana Maharshi some days ago. I had hoped to talk about Sri Ramakrishna first because chronologically he comes first. But not only chronologically. He is the teacher of the first world teacher of India in, in the modern world, Vivekananda. Vivekananda taught in English and wrote in English. And this is very important. But Ramakrishna knew only Bengali and Sanskrit. And he taught in, 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 in Bengali, in, in, in a kind of colloquial native Bengali, which, which is very hard to translate. But even in translation you can sense its power. And I'll have something to say about this uh, later. But Ramakrishna was... <coughs> Um, he may have been um, he may not have been a learned man but he had that, that kind of frightening intuition which comes from spiritual realization so that it, it would leave scholars breathless, they would have absolutely nothing to say, he, he would always come out on top 
And he said something very interesting when it was reported to him that a certain disciple of his, not Vivekananda, who had been to Calcutta University, had had every reason to study the English language, but somebody else for whom it was absolutely not necessary to, to, to start learning the English language. But this other person had started to study and learn to learn English, and it was a great neglect of, of other spiritually more important matters. And this was reported to Ramakrishna, and he said of this particular disciple, aha, now he will wear boots and start whistling. Now that, that bears some meditation. Why Ramakrishna should have thought that somebody who was learning uh, English without any real need would not, because that, that's a very wonderful image, if you will forgive my saying so, of, uh, of British imperialism in India, very heavy-footed, trampling upon native sensibility, and in its speech, very, very superficial. But that can happen to any dominant uh, group, any dominant caste whatever be their uh, racial or uh, geographical identity. But that image of uh, boots and whistling, mind you, I'm very partial to whistling, so I'm slightly troubled by this. <laughs> but uh, the idea that our, where we, our speaking should be serious, if not solemn, it, 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 it should, we, we should speak the great truths of existence and life and share and we should be barefoot and walk very gently on this earth. And not only on uh, another culture, but on this earth. It, it's, it's a wonderful way of bringing two, two responsibilities, one ecological and the other spiritual, together in one fine image, both, both humorous and profound. But anyway, I, 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 I find myself uh, happily whistling and, uh, and uh, speaking the English language, and I, I try to wear light shoes, but I, it's nevertheless, it's, I'm sure I, I manage to trample on all kinds of sensibility, for which I seek the forgiveness of Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. So with, with this prayer to him, let me tell you uh, the bare facts of his life first. He was born in 1836, around the time when British India was emerging as, as, as the kind of cultural uh, place that it was with uh, modern education, to the great neglect of, of native learning, I'm afraid. And there were very powerful reform movements at the time, which sought to reform, and rightly too, uh, Hindu society, Islamic society. But some of these movements sought to cut themselves off from what might be called the spiritual roots of India. And they, they, the leaders of some of these movements thought, along with uh, Christian missionaries and, and others, that the worship of images was the gravest sin that there could be. And the idea that the self was the same as God was the most unforgivable of all sins. And they said this out of a kind of self-hatred which is easily induced in conquered peoples and not out of any real uh, uh, spiritual inquiry. And then there were others who had allowed traditional spiritual learning to decay in India. And there, 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 there were uh, the pundits, traditional pundits in various schools who were happy with their learning 
and they, 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 they were not interested in sharing this learning, not only with the rest of the world, but even with the rest of Indian society. So this was a time of, of decay, internal, social, uh, uh, philosophical, of, uh, uh, of error, of deviation, of complacency, of, of boots and whistling. That's where Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa appears. It's a wonderful little story, apocryphal perhaps, but it's the it, it goes to the heart of the nature of this this extraordinary personality. I've, I've visited the, the little village, Kathleen, where he was born, uh, uh, Kamar Pukur. The, the, it, it means the village of the potters. Uh, it appears that when when Sri Ramakrishna was very little, uh, a few few. Uh, just a year or so, he wanted to disappear into the into an oven where where there was ash, uh, uh, a, 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 an earthen uh, stove, and was pulled out by an untouchable woman. He wanted to go into where, a place where there was ash because renunciation was 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 his second nature. It seemed he, ashes are, are, are associated with renunciation in India. Uh, Nicholas was asking me a little bit what renunciation is. Here is another meaning of it: ashes. Are, are, are what remain after the body is cremated. So the sage who wishes to renounce greed and illusion covers himself with ash to suggest that something in him has been burnt to ashes, the ego, the greed. Now, Sri Ramakrishna so longed for, 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 for these ashes that he wanted to disappear into this effort. And he was pulled out by this woman. And there is a little temple dedicated to this untouchable woman in this village. And he's not the only sage in recent times who was saved for the world by a, a, a despised woman of Indian society. Of course, you all know of, of the Buddha and, and Sujata, the, the woman who gave him some milk to, to drink and some rice to eat. Otherwise he would have died. The Buddha had, had fasted for, for a very long time thinking that that kind of mortification of the flesh was what was going to bring liberation and he was about to collapse and die when this woman, Sujata is her name ironically it means well born but she was of course very low born she, she saved his life so that, that's a, an ancient story of the help received by sages from despised women it, it's, it's a wonderful reminder of the debt that uh, the sages owe to, uh, to the neglected of the world and then there is Ramakrishna, of course. And I had occasion to, to tell the story of Ramana Maharshi, this young, illumined boy. Uh, at the age of 17, he had attained uh, Advaita Jnana, the, the, the illumination of non-duality. And he was on this hill, uh, wandering around in the sun, when, when there manifested this, this woman, this Chandala woman, low caste, and who hurled abuse at him in Tamil, the gist of which was, why are you wandering around in the sun? Are you off your head? Why don't you sit in one place? And the young uh, sage, uh, he himself recalled this, he slapped himself. And he said, yes, she's right. I must be available to everyone who wishes to see me. I, I told myself, careful to prolong this body, but I have a duty. I have to preserve it so that my teaching might be available to others. So that's another untouchable woman. And very few people know that Gandhi, when he was a child, he records this in his autobiography, he said he was, uh, he, he was afraid of everything when he was a child. 
He was afraid of, uh, wait, wait a minute, what are the three things? Snakes. He was afraid of thieves and he was afraid of ghosts. I think snakes, probably this is symbolic also. I, I think <clears throat> uh, quite clearly thieves were the British Raj, I think. Uh, they'd come and stolen India's freedom. Snakes were the betrayers of, of, of Indian tradition in the grass. And ghosts were those ghosts of the past, untouchability and other forms of social oppression which haunted and tormented India. And Gandhi was terrified of these three. But he was terrified. Fear is no good anyway. And then there was an untouchable uh, maid servant of the house who taught him the mantra Rama. And she said, take the name of Rama and you will not fear. And the young boy chanted the name of Rama till his dying breath. He died with the name of Rama on his lips. That's again a service to, <coughs> to Indian spirituality rendered by, by neglected uh, people, by, by oppressed by, by these wonderful women. Ramba, I think, was the name of this, uh, this maidservant. Ramba is a celestial dancer. Some of these women don't dance. They, they starve. But I think people like Gandhi and others have made it impossible for us to, to, let, to allow this to go on. We, 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 we will have to, to end misery and iniquity in India, if only to pay this debt of gratitude to these people categories of people so that's that's how Ramakrishna starts arrives he survives and around the age when he's about 20 or so this is also the time 1857 is the first uh, I'm sorry you will find in, in my account of Indian spiritual masters quite a lot of political history coming in because I, I have that sort of background and I cannot help this but 1857 is the first war of Indian independence. Sri Ramakrishna is totally uninterested in this. He's not opposed to this, but he's not interested. He is interested in a larger, greater independence from greed and from lust and from fear and from ego. And he arrives in the great city of Calcutta to be a, a priest because he's poor. They're a, a poor Brahmin family. By the way, I think perhaps this is not widely enough known, but Brahmins have spiritual authority, but nearly always they have been poor people, and they've not had much political power necessarily. There are exceptions to this, of course. But Sri Ramakrishna was born uh, uh, in a poor family, and he was uh, supposed to earn some money uh, for, for his family. So he came to Calcutta, where his brother was already a priest in a temple. But he, he soon found that this was, this was unworthy, that to, to earn, earn your money without liberating uh, uh, your soul, and, and that the important thing was to, to give something, to find God. He found employment as a priest then in a temple constructed again by an untouchable woman, but this time not a poor woman, but a queen of a, of, of a small region, uh, state, or not perhaps a queen, but a very powerful figure. Rani Rashmani. And there, this was a temple to the Divine Mother, and Ramakrishna had found his place at last. He devoted himself to austere spiritual practices in this temple. I visited this temple, it's very beautiful, on the bank of the Ganges, Ganga. And he, he applied himself to the task of seeing God, or the Goddess, 
with with such energy and such ferocity that he, oh, his health broke down. But he did every kind of spiritual practice. He wanted to, to <coughs> the <coughs> intuitively, instinctively, he felt that all spiritual religion was one in essence. That all the great spiritual traditions of the religions of the world must have a common source and a common goal. So he followed the different paths of Hinduism with great fidelity to their rules. He followed the, the, the spiritual paths of the Sufis and when he did that he put away all the pictures of gods and goddesses in his room. He grew, he grew a beard and he, he, he stayed with, uh, with Muslims. And he, he, was, uh, he, was, he was a very quick pupil of, uh, of the divine. So he got there very quickly each time. And he found that it was the same experience which, which, which happened at the end of each uh, spiritual uh, procedure and practice. The same illumination, the same indescribable, ineffable uh, reality he was face to face with. And he, um, he used to say, well, the old truth that sages have called it by different names, but truth is one. But he, he experienced this in, 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 in the spirit of our times, the experimental spirit of our times. And not only these great parts, but some of the obscurer parts, the, the monkey devotee of Rama, Hanuman, I, there's so much that I, I'm really a pretty unlearned fellow. I, I've, I've learned so much about my tradition from Ramakrishna. I didn't know that the word Hanuman literally means um, he, he of burnt chin or jaw. So the, there's a story which Ramakrishna tells in, in these books, by the way, which you have, if you haven't read, called The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, uh, a record in translation, his, his conversations during uh, several years. But Hanuman, this monkey devotee of God, when he was a child, Ramakrishna reminds us, it must be in some of the Puranas, he, he, uh, he thought that the sun was, was an apple or something, so he leapt towards it and wanted to eat it and burnt his jaw and came back and never tried it again. That he, he found this uh, truth and what that means is very, very important for us to keep in mind. That if we think that the truth is outside us, as technology thinks, we are likely to burn our chin so Hanuman bears these marks of, a, of an avoidable raid on, on the sun, like that. And this is why he's a devotee of God, because he abandoned this fruitless uh, path of growth. Just grab everything, everything out there. No, you were likely to get hurt. That's the model. But he wanted to follow the path of Hanuman. Hanuman was a monkey, so he used to sit on top of trees down in Krishna I believe this is absolutely, literally true. And whether it's literally true or not, I've, I've, I've read somewhere that during this process he actually grew a little tail. <laughs> now I'm inclined to think that even our anatomy probably responds to spiritual longing. It's quite possible. I wouldn't put it past uh, God to create this kind of humorous miracle, I think, for the edification of our age, especially. And then, when he wanted to follow the path of the worship of the Divine Mother, he just said he menstruated. He became so intimately identified with women that his body 
he, he menstruated. I think that is profoundly moving. But I think he was willing to lose blood for God. Yes, he was willing to yield. That he was, that's, it's, it's a menstruation is a womb readying symbol, isn't it? He was ready to be pregnant with God. And that is what it is. Ramakrishna was all these things. He is the supreme dancer uh, among spiritual uh, uh, practitioners of our age. He can, he can frighten. He can put people off. There are many, oh, in the 19th century, people thought he was mad, that he was perverted, he was horrible. But, but there were others who, who loved him. Amongst them was Vivekananda, the first teacher of modern India. But Ramakrishna did all this, and people did think that he had actually gone mad. And amongst these people were his own parents. And they thought that the, the sensible solution was to get him married. <laughs> so they called him back to the village and said, uh, I'm afraid we think you ought to get married. What do you think? It's a splendid idea, is what he said. <laughs> then he said, I know uh, where my wife is. She's five years old in another village somewhere. So he was married, he was 20, 25. But of course in India, when this used to occur, this doesn't mean that man and woman stayed together. Man and wife. <coughs> so they were married. And he went back to Calcutta and she waited for him until she was of age. And then she joined him, but they remained celibate, both Ramakrishna and Sharada Devi. Because I think it was important for him to show the world that uh, the, the marriage was sacred. But it was not necessary, although it was perfectly profitable, marriage, marriage to be sexually consummated, but it was not necessary. And, and they were devoted to each other, faithful to each other, and they were father and mother to all their disciples. And uh, Sri Sarada, his wife, is as important to us in India as Sri Ramakrishna. Indeed, Sri Ramakrishna was, was, was his, oh, he was greedy for spiritual truth. And when I first began the study of this great sage, I was worried. I said, now he's got everything, but where is his heart? Where is the center? Where is it where, where he holds, where he is in one place? Then I was quite upset by this. Then I discovered that he did a particular spiritual practice, where, which consisted of, of sitting his wife down in front of him, Sarada, and offering to her all the spiritual gifts that he had earned, all of it, he said, are now yours. Now, the renunciation. He was willing to share this with his wife. These are yours. Now, this doesn't normally happen in India. Um, 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 and, and it is recorded that after that, he had no special yearning for new spiritual experiences. He, he was established in peace. He had, all, of course, all these, these powers which he thought were worthless, if only because they were so, so easily acquired. But it was necessary, I think, for somebody in our age, which is so easily seduced by powers and miracles, for there to have been somebody who attained all these powers and threw them all away. Because so long as there is somebody who hasn't attained, oh, he probably doesn't know what it's really like to be able to produce a miracle, or he doesn't really like to know what this or that. A friend of mine once told me that, that there are three orders of saints. The first 
kind of saints produces miracles, and that's wonderful. The next higher category of saints uh, refused to perform miracles. But the highest category of saints both perform miracles and refuse to perform miracles. I think Sri Ramakrishna belonged to that third highest category of saints. I think all this is very important because we know now, A, that it is possible to do these miracles, B, that it is totally unnecessary to do so. Sri Ramakrishna, more than anybody else, teaches us this, demonstrates the precious lesson this. In the years ahead, India will be, <coughs> Indian wisdom will be sought by more and more people, and there will be uh, miracles there, there will be uh, uh, unbelief in miracles, but the example of Ramakrishna, where you, you see miracles, and also you see uh, the rejection of them, the renunciation of them, the, 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 <coughs> Uh, the liberation from the need for all this. But the greatest miracle of all is something for which he prayed. He wanted to teach this man and nobody was coming. He was doing his yoga so his body had become golden and beautiful. Then he prayed to the Divine Mother and said, take away this golden body, give me back my, 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 my brown Bengali skin, please, because the wrong people will come to me, you've given me a golden body. So he, he had his normal brown Bengali skin, very unattractive, and disciples started coming. And he started his, his life as a teacher, and what a teacher. I will not even try and tell his stories. You cannot. The pace is the speed of light, and that's the mind. You cannot keep pace with Ramakrishna. One after another, the parables just fall out of his lips. I will tell you a few stories, of course. But let me return to the birth of Ramakrishna. Now I think there are two dangers. The, the, the symbolism of, the, of this child wanting to die. Now, there are two things here. There is the desire of spiritual teachers to retreat into their shells, to renounce the world, to have nothing to do with it, to stay with their realization. That, that is also represented by this child wanting to, to disappear into this, into this oven. The other, more terrifying perhaps, is the desire of humanity, of secular humanity, to destroy itself. I think this untouchable woman, who must have been the Divine Mother herself, drawn attention to two dangers, to spiritual complacency and to secular annihilationism. I think that story of Ramakrishna, we must be saved from this. And, and who but uh, the, most, the despised of the earth can save us from this? Because they have been <clears throat> despised both by uh, religious and by secular traditions often. I think that is a very important lesson for us to learn from Ramakrishna, from the birth of Ramakrishna. We must try and apply the, 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 the lessons of his life to our condition. But here I must tell you a story. Which explains, in, in the inimitable Ramakrishna way, absolutely inimitable, now, you see, you make a, a, a very strange kind of confession. My own master, my, my guru, Ramana Maharishi, of course, told beautiful stories. He was a storyteller. But Ramakrishna was a dancer and a singer and, and a storyteller of genius. 
I, I, I think Ramana Maharshi would be very happy to say, first prize does not go to me here at all. There's a photograph of a photograph, photography of Ramakrishna dancing like that. A friend of mine pointed out that, that looks like somebody bowling an off-break. He really, really, it's very, it's very, I used to bowl off-breaks when I was a cricketer. It's, it's, a very, very, uh, it's a very confusing kind of uh, delivery, which perhaps the modern world deserves to be. It's a bold, I think, an off-break by a sage, I think, uh, or a googly of some kind. But uh, here is Ramakrishna singing and dancing, and he tells the following story, which goes to the heart of the, the, the nature of, of the crisis of our times. And it is characteristically Indian philosophy. So if you want, if you're looking for a story, yes, if you're looking for a story which at its deep levels would teach the, without compromise, without a desire to please modern audiences, the essence of classical Indian philosophy, the story is this. Ramakrishna says that there was a traveler walking through a forest and he had lost his way. And he was pounced upon by three robbers. It happened still everywhere in India. Happen in Delhi, Bombay, these are also jungles now. And these three robbers bore the names Sattva, Raja, and Tama. These are three qualities of, of, of personality in Indian psychology, spiritual psychology. Sattva is the quality of, um, of intelligence, of what might be called the liberal mind in, in modern times. Nice people have this quality. Good, nice people have this quality, but they don't always have the quality of courage, says people of God. After, the, uh, after Hitler and Stalin are dead and gone, they would say they were very bad people. But when they were alive, they, they wouldn't be able to tell them that. And so on. Sattva. The, the, the first robber was called Sattva, robber. The second robber was called Raja. They, they are the Everest. They are the Hitlers and Stalins of the world. They are the greed for power and for things. They kill. They enslave. They lead. They rule. And the third is Tama. Tamas. They are the, oh, they are the, 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 the inertia people. Oh, 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 would like to sleep. And inertia could be of, of religious uh, recluses. It could also be of <coughs> they, they do little. So these were the three robbers, and they waylaid this poor traveller, the soul, and tied him, this traveller, to a tree. Rajas was of the view that he should be killed immediately. We will not take any risks with you know, the possibility of identification and so on. <coughs> now Thomas, who was a lazy fellow, said, Oh, don't do that. I will, uh, I'll leave him there. Leave him there. I'll leave him there. And Sattva said, nice to, oh, yes, I'll stay here and keep an eye on him. I'll, 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 I'll make sure that he does. So uh, Tama, the, 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 the robber representing inertia, and Rajas, the robber representing aggressive violence, uh, went, went, went away to look for other travelers. And Sattva took pity on this traveler and said, ah, oh, you poor fellow. I'm going to untie you. This is not fair. They shouldn't have done it. Horrible people, those two. You know, but I, 
I don't know why I, I, I stick around with them. I, I should really consider leaving. But it's a hard life, you know. It's not so easy to leave your friends. It's also not very polite to them. You know, I owe something to them. And so he unties this traveler. And the traveler says, Oh, I'm so grateful to you. So it's Ramakrishna's story. I'm, I'm, I'm really more or less literally as good. I'm so grateful to you. You are so good. So, oh, you think so? You, uh, well, oh, yes, but uh, look, I, I'd like to see you to the edge of the forest. He said, no, 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 I, no, no, I must insist on taking you to the edge of the forest. So he says, I never knew that a robber could be so kind. So he takes him to the edge of the forest, and the traveler says, Now you have been so good to me, you must come to my home and meet my family. They say, No, 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 I must go back to the forest because the police will catch me here now. From this point onwards, I cannot go. Now, he too cannot stand the light of truth. Now, they, 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 the kind person who will not have the courage to speak the truth, to take on the, uh, the wicked, he is subtle. He uh, is liable to, to flattery and so on. And such a person would remain the ally, not of truth, but of violence and of inertia. So inertia, complacency, violence, greed, and a, a weak-willed uh, uh, goodness, if that is the right word, or uh, a weak-willed orientation towards light, which, which is some kind of indulgence. Uh, professors like me tend to be like that. We read spiritual books and so on. But as Nicholas wants to know, what do we do about it? We are rather slow there. But still, there might be hope for us in this story. Because something, of the, after all, he did lead the traveller to the edge of the forest. And maybe something did happen to this particular robber. But this is a very great story. I want to share this with you that Ramakrishna is not here setting up good against evil, but he's setting up truth against three categories of, of falsehood, one of which looks like good, but of course it is not. But it, it often passes for good. It is the quality of right opinions, correct opinions, decent attitudes, but that's all. A good education no application. The sort of thing that Ramakrishna did not want to do in Calcutta, that Vivekananda did not want to do. They rejected the idea of good education. Mind you, they acknowledged that British education was good, but it, it was not what was, what was needed in India. What was needed was, was, was spiritual illumination and a passionate love for the land and for humanity. And this was not being given. It still isn't anywhere in the world. This is why I think it's important for, for um, the Tebinos Academy to, um, to, to remain with us and to grow. So Ramakrishna is saying beware. You are meant to, to discover that. The fourth we were talking about it today in the class. The fourth is the truth. Is God. Is, is, um, is the light. The highway of truth. We are meant to be led there by uh, perhaps sattva, but we are meant also to be awakened to uh, to the dangers of the forest by uh, encounters with uh, rajas and tamas. Certainly, and that has happened in history. We know of the power of uh, of uh, violence and greed, and the dangerous consequences of uh, of complacency and inertia, and of the unpredictability 
of the, of the, of, of the good people of the world to actually help uh, humanity in distress or uh, other life. But these three robbers, I think, and, and, and the relationship of these three robbers to truth is a very characteristic Indian way of avoiding dualism or duality. For instance, the duality between good and evil, or between God and the devil, or between the East and the West, if you like. It's a way of saying that it's more complex than that. Let me try and translate this again politically, forgive me. I think that I'm, we were talking in the, in, in the afternoon and in that class of the Manduki Upanishad with friends, students, of the waking state, the dream, and the sleep. Now, I think what's called capitalism or individualism, the philosophy of greed, is a robber of the kind uh, described by Ramakrishna in that story, who steals the surplus of the day's labor, surely. That's what Marx prophesied, what Marx uh, discovered. He doesn't give it back to the day. He keeps it for himself. First robber. And I think communism, surely, collectivism, is the robber of the surplus of the evening's joy. Surely. The, the surplus produced by the hard labor of the day, and not only by humanity, but by the earth. Is the, and every human being is a, is a capitalist in this sense. And also it is in everyone, every society, to be a collectivist, to, to be collectivist or communist. To, beyond what is necessary to preserve the state, all the freedoms discovered in the evening, the time of play, or if appropriated by the state, that's a robber too, who robs the, the extra, the intuitions, the insights, the poetry, the freedom produced by, by, by the free spirit in, in the evening. In, in the tavern of life. So the robber in the factory, the robber in the tavern. And then, deep sleep, the time of perfect rest where most of us in health renounce even dreaming. We want to rest. That perfect peace, that perfect sleep of spiritual realization. The surplus is stolen by the religious fundamentalist. He is the third robber. The robber of the surplus of peace produced in our sleep, in our renunciation. These are the three robbers of Ramakrishna's story. And I think the world is, what the world is up against is all three in each of us, in each of our cultures, in each of our traditions. That is a very great story of Ramakrishna with this this <coughs> So with this clear application to, to our times, to our politics, it's amazing how the most politically relevant people are, are, are sages who had nothing to do with external politics at all. But they are the ones whose insights are likely to endure in, in the political life of humanity. I spoke in the lecture on Ram, Ramana Maharishi of his thought that you, you, some of you will recall his, his reply to, to one of the fighters for India's freedom who said when independence comes after struggle and sacrifice ought we not to be elated and happy? He said of course not. You shouldn't think of these results. You are in the hands of a higher power. You, you should do your duty. 
And this is precisely what didn't happen in India. And I refer to this as, as the, the explosion which split the spiritual unity of India. It's, it's a betrayal of, of, uh, of spiritual unity by the East, just as the splitting of the atom, I think, was the betrayal of the unity of nature by the West. But anyway, that's, why did this happen? Because at the point of victory in India, we divided our country, forgetting that we hadn't brought about independence, but we were guided towards it. The East allowed this to happen. We may have been assisted by, uh, by uh, the British Empire's desire to wind things up, but we can't blame the British Empire entirely. In 1942, India had asked the British Empire to quit India. And so that's exactly what they did. So there was provocation, but it doesn't justify the, the act of division. You might say there was provocation to the bomb. Uh, Japan had done horrible things, as though uh, others had not. And Japan had uh, bombed Pearl Harbor, as though uh, others had not done similar. There was provocation, yes. But uh, what, was what was done in, under provocation is, I think, really, the consequences of that will be with us for hundreds of years. But that political advice, because the Allies thought that they had won the war against Hitler, it's not true. So many things helped, including India's struggle for freedom. That also helped. It kept the moral sense active in the West. If India hadn't struggled morally against the British guard, I don't think the conscience of the West would have been active at all. And they might even have said, well, Hitler's not too bad after all. Let's, let's split the world between fascism and imperialism. I think it was a very important service uh, uh, done to, uh, to the allied uh, to allies by India. Anyway, the, 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 the thought that we have brought about this thing is the wicked thought, is what brings about these catastrophes. Now that's Ram, Ramana Maharishi, political wisdom. Ramakrishna Paramahams, political wisdom. So I would say this to those who would wish to discover the, the, the politics of the future, study not the politicians but the sages. Ramakrishna. is probably the very first in the modern world. Now, certainly the very first that I know of. Who taught the doctrine of the unity of all spiritual religion? And I want to talk a bit about this at some length. This is very important for my theme uh, this evening. There is a lazy way of understanding this. A way often encouraged by, uh, by Indian uh, speakers that oh, all religions are the same, which is manifestly false. They're not the same. They are, they are very different. It's like saying all people are the same. They're not. They're the so different. So that is not what Ramakrishna is saying. When he says all spiritual religions are one, all the spiritual traditions of religions are one, he's saying two things. He's reporting the results of his own spiritual experiments, of course. Very faithfully. And, and these books are full of very detailed descriptions. But not only that, he is doing something which I think is vitally, vitally important. He is applying a theory implicit in Indian spiritual tradition to the data of religion. Would be that it should be possible for A 
religion A, to give a non-condescending account of the truth of religion B. It's not good enough if tolerance is to be real to say, oh, they are nice people, you know, they, 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 they also pray. That they actually are good people amongst them. That, that, that's not tolerance, that's condescension. It's not enough to say, oh, there are prophets everywhere. No, but they are the prophets of God. That they utter the same truth. If we can't say this, let's not pretend to be tolerant. Let's still want to be friendly. Ramakrishna is not proposing a weak doctrine of tolerance, of being nice. He's proposing a serious theory for understanding the heights of all religions. It's a very Indian theory. It's very important to bear when, when Indians, with authority, have spoken of religious tolerance, people like Gandhi, Ramana Maharishi, Ramakrishna Paramahams, Vivekananda, they have tried to do what I have just tried to explain as the necessary condition. For them, Jesus is, is Atman, Brahma. They don't say Jesus is a wonderful teacher with such clever parables, almost as good as Ramakrishna. They're not saying that. They're saying, yes, Jesus is the Atman. And they, they, they have tried to offer an account, a pious, serious account of the life of Jesus, of the mind of Jesus, of the death and resurrection of Jesus, according to the highest lights of their own faith. Now, this is the important thing. Indian religious tolerance is of interest to me because of this. We are not more tolerant as human beings. Believe me, we are not. But there is an implicit theory. There is a theology. There is a spiritual wisdom which helps us to understand the true nature of tolerance. That is, to be able to see in other traditions the highest truth that we see in our own. Not just that sufficient truth. Not just a possible doctrine, not just a, 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 a B grade, but the, the, the A plus that everyone longs for. Let me give you some examples. Now, for me, a Hindu, I have studied what I'm about to do for you. Yes, I'm about to do for you an experiment in, 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 the, in the theology of tolerance according to Hinduism, which owes everything to Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. So may he help me. As a Hindu who has read the Gospels with love and devotion over the years, as a philosopher and a theologian, I began to see something. That the Christian trinity ought to be redescribed. Surely the third person of the Trinity should be the Divine Mother. I'm speaking as a Hindu. And I, I, I see the... I, believe me, this is a, a pious exercise. This is not a reductionist exercise. As a Hindu lover of Jesus, I see his mother and his favorite disciple John at the foot of the cross. And what he says, Absan, behold, your mother. Mother. The meaning of that I see as something like this. It is now, this is Shaivite Hinduism, what I'm about to apply. You might read this if you were a Hindu as follows. Jesus has taught the truth of the Father. And he is the Son. 
And he's showing to representative humanity, John, the mother. That's Christ's own mother. For us, Christ's mother, I mean his mother, is the third person of the Trinity for Hindus. And the fact that she had children less illustrious than Jesus is proof for us of the Divine Mother's grace that she would have not only this outstanding boy but also many others not, not necessarily as bright but that this is the compassion of the Divine Mother all our children so this is Hindu theology as applied to the data of, of Christ's life but which enables us to see Christ in the light of our own highest truth this is the tolerance that Ramakrishna is talking about. When he sees in a vision Jesus, which he did, he started like black. He saw, he, yes, he said, with his eyes open, off he said, sometimes with my eyes open, sometimes with my eyes closed. Yes, both, very important. This is why I think in the photographs of sages, their eyes are half open. They never show whether to open them or to close them. They don't want to miss any particular show of the divine. So, so Ramakrishna, see, he, he prayed to Jesus, he went to a church. He prayed and longed for Jesus. Love. He, he, he fell and he, he became a devil. He prayed and, and the, the longer but he saw Jesus. And he described himself in, 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 in such simple direct words. A grave personage. Yes. White robes. I saw him. He says. I don't think he's lying. No. Not inventing. I think he compelled the divine to to to, to, to to manifest in this way. He, he, he made uh, frightening demands on the divine. When the divine mother Kali refused to manifest, he went to her image and there's a sword that he took and said, I'm going to kill myself if you, if you don't show me. And she did. He, the importunate seeker, he said, if you are there and if it is true that you can be seen, I want to see you now. I don't think it's easy to refuse uh, a demand like that. So, Jesus appears to him. And when he sees Jesus, he sees Jesus as the Parabrahman. Yes. When he sees Muhammad, when he sees Moses and others, he sees them as sages. He is not seeing them as uh, also rans. No. Seeing them as all them victorious in in, in, in spiritual in, 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 in their search for absolute truth. So this is important. Likewise, the great uh, 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 traditions of Islam and Judaism, for, for a Ramakrishna-inspired Hindu like myself, I would see that Ramakrishna says, and this is classical Hindu doctrine, for what it is worth, it is this. Accept it or throw it away, but this is what it is. He says, God himself has become all this. Nothing else has the power to manifest. God alone can manifest. Nothing else can manifest. But all this, all this manifestation is very dark and obscure, and we need to, oh, to remove all kinds of layers. But it's God. nothing would even seem to be if it were not God trying to be seen by us. Now, if that is so, then it is the it is the self which is which is the divine for Hinduism, which has 
which sees itself as human beings, as other beings, worshipping the formless divine. It is, it is God himself who sees himself or herself as all of us see him as that. Now that is a way of regarding the formless God as the highest truth. It is the truth of the self, of Brahman and Atman, manifested to itself in this way of concealment and revelation. Now this is not what Ramakrishna is saying. I'm trying to say this as, as, as a philosopher and as a theologian of angelism who owes everything here to the inspiration of Ramakrishna. When I see Judaism and Christianity and, and, and Islam like this, I, I, I feel close to these traditions because I feel that I'm paying them the highest tribute. But this is one way of... And I think it's, it, it should be an acceptable way for the following reason. Because it is the highest tribute paid by, by a major religious tradition. I think this should not be forgotten. It is not the, the, the tribute paid by, by a convert to these traditions. That would be admirable too. A Hindu who has embraced Islam, of course, he or she would praise Allah. But a Hindu, as a Hindu who sees in this a, a, a great miracle of revelation, I think that might in the future play a big part in bringing Islam and Hinduism and Judaism together and also Christianity. Likewise the Buddha. The Buddha, Hindus and Buddhists have quarreled since ancient times, one of the most costly spiritual errors of history. This great uh, son of India, this, this great light, uh, not only of the world, as, uh, as Arnold uh, calls him, not, not only the light of Asia, but surely the light of the world also, the Buddha. Because so many all over the world are discovering him. But there is a needless quarrel. They say, oh, the Buddha didn't believe in the self. He said there was no self. This is not true. He didn't want to talk about that which is. Because the moment you say self, people think you mean the body, you mean the ego. So he chose not to talk about it. Instead, he talked about shunyata, the, the emptiness within which we are all situated. Now that's easier to... And also, it, as Kathleen has pointed out, uh, that the, the great philosopher Corbin also draws attention to the, to the uh, apophatic theology, the theology of the true, true nothingness, which alone can meet the, the, the challenge of, of nihilism. That's, that's Buddhism. But that not-thingness is the self, which is also not a thing among other things. So when I, as an Advaitin philosopher, following the, the teachings of Ramakrishna, think this thought, that, oh yeah, the Buddha's shunyata is the not-thingness of the Upanishads. I pay the highest tribute to shunyata. I'm not trying to reduce Buddhism to Hinduism. I'm trying to see the highest truth of Hinduism in another light. I, I, in, in seeing Christ in the way in which I have just described, I'm unable to see Hinduism in another light, and so on. This entire program for theology is established by Sri Ramakrishna's Temenos Academy, Catholic, in the 19th century. In, in this courtyard of this temple, he taught, he spoke, he told stories, he lived and he died there. Now that's, that's another story of Ramakrishna, where, where the true basis of religious tolerance, which will endure 
not the merely sentimental. Now, this exercise should be attempted in various directions. A Christian way of, of, of seeing Hindu truth without condescension, and so on, and so on. Let it take time. But let that be a necessary condition. If we can't, we should say, we are not yet able to see this. Uh, help us. We should say this. Because psychological, sentimental uh, uh, tolerance is, uh, oh, is, depends on the weather. When the weather is good, it's okay. When the weather is bad. In India, you will find often, when the weather, uh, weather gets worse, uh, taxi fares also go up. Now that's... that's uh, uh, so uh, I think that's what happens. We demand uh, uh, excess fare, I think, from our neighbours when the weather is bad. So not that kind of tolerance, but this other thing, which would be true friendship, which would stay with uh, other communities in times of distress, hold uh, one another to, to our highest truths. Gandhi tried to do that too. And he was not being a hypocrite. Many people think, especially many Hindu critics of Gandhi today, Impatient critics, alas, I have to say this, do not understand that Gandhi was implementing the Ramakrishna program of what might be called deep theology. The word deep ecology people are familiar with now. But there is a deep theology, a program outlined by Ramakrishna Paramahams, which invites us to see in, in, in the light of our own highest truth, the truths of others. And in saying, Islam is a religion of peace. He was holding Islam to its own central doctrines. He wasn't merely forgetting facts of history as, as his Hindu critics would say. No. It is possible to think of Hinduism only in terms of untouchability and so on. That would be a mistake. We must, in our appreciation as in our criticism, we must think of anybody or anything at their highest and deepest level. That is a necessary condition for any enduring tolerance. And Sri Ramakrishna is the chief authority and example for this process which continues and which needs to, to widen and deepen. Then, to any great teacher in the spiritual realm, there are two dimensions at least. One is a dimension of universality, not in some dull way of uniformity, but in the sort of way that I'm trying to describe to you, a program, which the, the fruits of which lie in, in, in the future, something like that. But also a, a, a local color, a specificity, which identifies them with, with their time and place. Otherwise they wouldn't be real. They would be fictions, or they would be fantasies, they would be wish fulfillment. So Ramakrishna is this other program for humanity, but he's also the local worshipper of the Divine Mother. I must talk about this. He's the one who, who, who longs, who cries to the Divine Mother. And, and, and he, he was found like this, crying for the Divine Mother, and somebody thought that his own mother had died. But it was worse than that fate for him, because the Divine Mother had withdrawn and was no longer manifest. And he cried and he wept and he rubbed his face. He, he was a very odd person. He, we, 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 we mustn't try and copy him. No. He was very special. I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. No. Uh, he rubbed his face on the ground and he bruised himself. Where are you? And then she showed herself again. Oh. But he was that too. He's the one who menstruated. He's the one who wore the clothes of women without being a, a transvestite. No. He did this as a man. 
his tribute to, to the Divine Mother. He wanted to be like her. He wanted to say, this man, not just that I and my father are one, but I and my mother are one. I think that is something. I think something which even feminism will not achieve, I think, easily. So here was this, this extraordinary, eccentric, odd man who, who taught the sanest truths. I think that's important. Otherwise, his sane truths might, might have been a bit dull, I think. No, nothing in Ramakrishna is dull. But with this, this, <coughs> oh, this, this illumined eccentricity, he becomes unforgettable, I think, Ramakrishna. Here is this, uh, this man, he, he, <clears throat> it was all this, and yet people report that he looked like a lion when he paced up and down the courtyard of his temples. He was all that. And I told you the story of his visit to the Calcutta Zoo, where he saw a lion in a cage and went into Samadhi, spiritual ecstasy, and had to be brought back to, to Dakshineshwar. <laughs> the rest of the, the tour had to be cancelled, because he thoroughly disapproved of the caging of, <clears throat> of animals, whom he saw as, as vehicles of, of, of divine Shakti. So I do think that the Divine Mother, uh, I'm I'm not saying this in a feminist way, although I I see many important things there. The Divine Mother here is not something which is opposed to the Divine Father, no. But the notion of the source is both father and mother. It's very important to say this, not merely dully theologically, but in all the vivid colors of actual traditions. So the Divine Mother of Sri Ramakrishna is like the Divine Father of Jesus, absolutely. I think he is trying to, he, let me say, let me say this. He is, I think his relationship to Christianity is not to be uh, 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 forgotten, or even Gandhi's. Gandhi began his, some of his public life. He, he was a student here, and he was solicited by good Christians. He was sought to be converted to Christianity, and Gandhi was always open to the, tell me about it, he would say. Then he was, no. But I love my Gita. Yes, I find this in the Gita. And, and the mission, his missionary friends would be exasperated and would just walk away. But he remained friends. They, they remained good friends. Some of his best, closest friends and associates were missionaries. But he did not convert to Christianity. Now, I think he opposed uh, the whole idea of conversion. Well, that is one thing, intellectually, theologically, even ethically, to oppose the idea of say, conversion to Christianity. But I think the ultimate argument against proselytizing Christianity in India is the perfect Christian death that Gandhi died. That it was for the first time, I think, in the history of Hinduism that a Hindu was killed by a fellow Hindu. Now this is Christ-like for us. And there's no argument there. there's something there which says that Christianity is not confined to one part of the world in one period of time. But that, that is to be seen everywhere. And I think it does something to Hinduism's pride also. There is not enough to, to win theological battles. Hindu, Hindu the Brahmanic tradition is very subtle, very, very, very important. But no, it is in, in a life of service. In life of giving, Genevieve asked me today. But we're talking about the self, but are we not forgetting the Christian teaching of loving others? Yes. Loving others as yourself throughout a lifetime and, and willingness to die for your friends, who are both Hindus and Muslims, who are human beings. A refusal to, to accelerate hatred, to escalate violence, 
the refusal to do this. It would have been so easy for him to win popularity, and, and not immortality, but certainly enduring remembrance as a leader of the Hindus if he had tried to thwart the partition of India by uh, threatening and producing a, a, a super, a, a, a holocaust. He did not do it. No. He went to Noah Khalif to save innocent lives. He's, he made enemies, one of whom killed him. But I think he provided the Christian dimension to Hinduism, which is the perfect answer to proselytizing Christianity's claim that Hinduism is inadequate. Likewise, Ramakrishna. I would say here even more creatively than Gandhi. He worships the Divine Mother, thereby I think correcting a certain uh, misogynist dimension in, in uh, Orthodox Christian theology. Forgive me if, I, if I'm wrong. I think he enables Christianity to see that it's possible to be like Christ and to worship the source as mother. I think this, is our, this, this kind of inter-theology is very important. I may be getting it wrong this time, but this is the sort of thing that it's important to try and get right, is what I'm trying to say. And if, if I'm enabled to do this kind of theological experiment here, it is because of the authority of Ramakrishna Paramahamsa and, and the program and the following of this program. So he's very important in this, and also he has disciples. So for Hinduism, the establishment of a monastic order by Vivekananda, now I think it, it gets lost along the way somewhere. We won't talk about it now, we'll be talking about Ramakrishna. But Ramakrishna is a great, is a great liberator of spiritual energies in, 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 our, in our age, and, and I think he, his life needs to be studied more closely. And, and I do think he connects in important ways as does Gandhi, as does Ramana, with other religious traditions. And above all, the, 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 the application of, of sacred Hindu philosophy to the truths of other faiths, I think is probably going to be the most memorable contribution of, uh, of these sages to, well, uh, uh, oh, it's quarter to nine. I must end with, with a couple of stories because uh, without them we, we don't, um, yes, violence and non-violence. Ramakrishna is not quite like Gandhi. For, for Gandhi, non-violence was a tremendous idea, something which had to be explored. Ramakrishna is more traditional here. Uh, he told the following story. He said there was a sadhu, a holy man, who was walking through a village, and there was a particular a plot of land that he was trying to cross and, and children came and said, don't, don't do this, there's a very dangerous snake who lives here. He said, oh, does he really? Well, I wouldn't mind uh, greeting him. Don't worry, nothing will happen to him. So he went and of course this cobra uh, raised his head to, he said, oh, hello, why are you doing this? Uh, you shouldn't do this. You should take the name of God. Hurry, don't do this. Uh, Hari is, is the name of God, not H-U-R-R-Y, H-A-R-I. Take the name of God and I'll come back next year and see you and I'm giving you, I'm initiating you. People don't, don't people fear you and hate you? I love you, you're my friend. Here, this is a mantra. The cobra, for the first time, was not only loved and not feared, but was actually initiated. So the cobra, for the next 12 months, 
the name of God, Hari. And little children soon came, soon came. And and the sadhu had said, "Don't bite, don't don't bite." So he didn't bite. Children came and used to beat him and trouble him. But he would say, "Hari, Hari." He would dance like Hari. And then after a year, the sadhu came back, and he walked through this plot of land, and he said. Where are you, my friend? Where are you? He couldn't find him. But then he discovered him lying nearly dead. And he said, What has happened to you? Did you not take the name of Hari? He said, I did nothing else. And people said, I told you not to bite. I did say, Don't hiss. <laughs> so that's uh, non-violence of the non-fundamentalist kind. At least that we should accept. Thank you. Very happy to, yes, of course. I've taken liberties, I should certainly take questions. Yes. You spoke at length on the Ramakrishna's uh, wish to integrate or to uh, bring the great religions of the world into. Folks close together. It seemed more for people outside of India. What was his effect on India itself during his lifetime? Because he was recognized internationally, or the number was Ramakrishna Krishna, great influence in India itself. Absolutely. Uh, Gandhi during one of his short visits to India from South Africa. You, you may perhaps recall that Gandhi spent the early part of his adult years in South Africa, 20 years in fact. And one of the first things he wanted to do was to visit Vivekananda in Dakshineshwar. So that's one of the leading figures of modern India. Everyone wanted to be initiated by at least a, a disciple of Ramakrishna into this new program, really. And Ramakrishna's influence spread very quickly because he brought to an end two things, what might be called uh, spiritual complacency on the part of Hindus and so on, and also spiritual pride on the part of uh, reform movements, which wanted to throw the baby uh, out with the bathwater. But he, he wanted the baby all right, but he also wanted it to be looked after by the Divine Mother, and by, uh, by the highest wisdom. So his influence spread very... And in, in fact, he is... Vivekananda is, is now less, I think, easily understood than Ramakrishna. Because there's something about Vivekananda which belongs to a particular age, a time where a certain sort of rhetoric was very important, a certain sort of argument, and slightly, uh, slightly strident, because he had to deal with strident uh, criticisms, but Ramakrishna's voice remains uh, timeless and... Uh, and those stories, Vivekananda never could tell a story like that. I, I, I can't, I'm not even uh, going to try to. But these, uh, those stories, those, those theologies, he, he, I think the, an illumined sage endures and, and the influence spreads very quickly. And his life was, was there, there was no hypocrisy to it, he lived completely in the open. He, of course, he, he and his wife were under a vow of chastity. So there was a disciple who wanted to test him on this. So he hid in the night 
and he saw Ramakrishna, his wife room up the, upstairs. So he saw in the middle of the night that Ramakrishna had got up. He said, aha, now he's going to visit. He'd gone out to pee, in fact. And he said, so he, uh, he said, yes, do test me, yes. So he was like that. He was an honest man. There was no hypocrisy to him. There was no cowardice. But there was... Words of wisdom, how can one escape? I mean, this his snake story. They apply to situations timelessly. And uh, Vivekananda records that he uh, once sat down uh, in front of Ramakrishna and went on and on and on against a particular religion. It could have been Islam, it could have been a reform movement, it could have been Christianity, it could have been anything. And he writes, the Ramakrishna heard me for a whole hour and a half. And then when I was too exhausted to go on anymore, he said, but Vivekananda, maybe there is a, a back door even for them into the house of truth. So he, how can one forget a remark like, it doesn't come from the mind, that sort of remark. I couldn't invent it in a thousand years, that kind of remark. It comes from a higher place. Might have been a little frightened of Ramakrishna. I think they would have. But he was he had for for theorists alone, he would have said they are like the first robber. Your own question. What he might say, what what do you what are you going to do about it, uh, Mr. Yu? Well, I think the world is one place where we can't appropriate Ramakrishna. I don't think the West should appropriate its traditions. Mm. I think everything belongs to everybody. And this division in time and places as it should be, it keeps vanity in its proper place, I think. But I think Jung would, of course, he would, he would be greatly excited. He had a childlike curiosity about everything. Then he, for instance, he wanted to learn, logic was being taught. Yes, yes, oh yes. The, the, the person who, who wrote down his conversations was a, a person educated in, in the modern system of philosophy and logic. So he asked, tell me, what is the logic that is being taught in, in, in today's universities? So he said, oh, there's inductive logic and deductive logic. Inductive logic says, this crow is black, that crow is black, so all crows are black. Deductive logic says, X is mortal, Y is mortal, so all are mortal. Ramakrishna was lost interest in the subject of, of utter blackness and mortality. He thought this was not truth at all. Huh? These depressing conclusions huh? about mortality and about darkness. He was not willing to believe that this, this, had, this was uh, true logic. Now, so he would have said of the greatest logician, oh, but what, where does it take you? Where, where is the light? We don't want inference, we want illumination. I mean, like, he would have said it was authority. So Jung, Freud, and others, yes. Einstein, I think he would have said, oh yes, but that is the divine mother's, and it's yours, you are a thief, he would have said. 
He's not yours. And he would have asked the scientist. I've always believed that there are the most curious things about science as, as a system of, of knowledge. In history, if you look at systems of knowledge, I can't think of a single system of traditional knowledge which was not interested in the knower. Whereas the scientist, quay scientist, is not interested in himself. It seems to me to be an extraordinary defect. Ramakrishna would surely have drawn attention to this. I, who knows? But why do we think that Ramakrishna is not available in conversation? I think we can always speak to the sages because I don't think they die with their bodies. This is a truth. I'm not saying this sentimentally merely. I do really think that the, the illumined sage uh, is, is there. We only have to call upon them. And we can enter into a conversation with him. I, uh, this is, I certainly think that this is true of Ramana Maharishi. I call upon him and I speak to him. Yeah. I don't, I'm not going to hear voices like that, but uh, I have no doubt that that he is present. And he's present not uh, here as opposed to there, but in a more uh, circumambient way. Very misty, hard to say. This is so I, I think I, I never met him in the flesh. Uh, I haven't. No, uh, but it's very difficult when you have a guru. You you do not think of another in, as as a guru in that way. But the, I have met uh, uh, devotees of Ramakrishna as I have met devotees of Jesus, and they they are in, in communion with them. They don't claim infallibility for what they uh, understand, but certainly contact. Yeah, I don't think it can be denied. Certainly. Yes. Um, I was wondering what, what was his what was Gandhi's relationship with Paramahansa Yogananda? Did did he um, contact him as much as he did Ramakrishna? He did not contact Ramakrishna. Had died in eighteen eighty six. Gandhi visited Dakshineshwar, where Ramakrishna had lived, in in the hope of talking to Vivekananda, who was also away on that day. So he didn't meet any. Gandhi's relation, Paramahamsa, read Paramahamsa Yogananda's book where he describes his visit to the ashram and the initiate. But I think Gandhi was interested in, in all spiritual seekers and he didn't become an initiated uh, a devotee of any particular path. Because he, because I think his teacher, if you ask me, yes, I've, I've, I've been asked this question and after years I think I have an answer. Who was Gandhi's spiritual teacher? I would say his nanny, Ramba, who gave him the mantra, Ram. Absolutely. No doubt about it. And once you have been initiated, and that was his sadhana, the taking of the name of Rama silently with every breath. Indeed, this is so. It's called Ajapa Ramanam in, in, in Hindu uh, terms. It means the continuous uh, saying of Rama with each breath. And he did that from the age of 5 on to 79. So who was his teacher? <coughs> And he, he says that his, his heart, the throne in his heart was empty. No, he couldn't put any form there. That is his design. No, he couldn't. But he respected all forms. But for him, this name of Ram is very important. The chanting of this name. It's been declared by Ramakrishna Paramahamsa to be the most um, uh, convenient and uh, spiritual practice for our age. The chanting of the names of God. 
So I, I don't really know. Gandhi has not written much about Paramahamsa uh, Yogananda, although Paramahamsa Yogananda has written about Gandhi. So I think his relationship to him would have been one of great respect and love, but not of uh, uh, of a uh, convert to a particular spiritual path as opposed to his own chosen uh, path of Please feel free to ask questions about uh, the other sages because this is the last uh, lecture on, on the sages. I was actually thinking about um, Yogananda, who I don't know very much about, but I know <coughs> that that book, Autobiography of the Yogi, had a great influence on many people. Yes. Very, yes. And that was a whole lineage in there spoken of. Is, is that a different line to uh, the Ramakrishna, the Vivekananda line? I mean, I know a lot of uh, people... Uh, uh, Swami's went to California who yeah. were connected in Los Angeles and there was a connection it could be um, some English writers Christopher Isherwood yes. there was that whole line and I think it was to do with um, Yogananda I think it's very similar but they are quite Unlike, I think, uh, the, the, I think Paramahamsa Yogananda was, was the spiritual success, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong, of Siddhesh, uh, of his guru. So that, that's another tradition where yes. successors are appointed. Ramakrishna is not in that tradition. Mm-hmm. That's a crucial difference. He's not establishing a, 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 a lineage, Ramakrishna, mm-hmm. no. I think Vivekananda more or less does it uh, on his own. Yes. So there, I really think that it's... it's, it's, it's uh, is not unlike uh, the relationship between Jesus and St. Paul. Would you say their doctrines were... Very similar, very similar. But the style of teaching Ramakrishna is a village boy. It has all these parables which come from this very strange story, source of storytelling which Kathleen can tell us about, where, where, where this lies, the where stories come from, where images, where poetry, songs, music, the others are not singing and dancing people to the same extent. Ramakrishna belongs in that in that tradition of of uh, ecstatic. Ecstatic. Yes. Were they also Advaita or were they Advaita? Yes, but there are of course subtle variations mm-hmm. in, in the development of doctrine. Mm-hmm. But Advaita, yes, certainly. Mm-hmm. And I think they would accept uh, what I've described as the necessary condition for mm-hmm. tolerance and so on which flows, I think, from Ramakrishna's teaching. I, I saw a hand at them. I just wanted to check out that you actually said that um, the different religions, as it were, can be guardians of each other's truths. Yes. Uh, that, um, you did actually say that. Guardian. So that sort of points a way forward, as it were. I think I did quite... It was not the words, although this would, I think, uh, be not incompatible with, with the words I did use. I think they w- should be discoverers of one another's truth in the light of their own uh, truth. They should be able to see uh, uh, one another's truth as their own. They, You're almost pointing out the mistakes. I mean, I, um, the departures, you know, when, when you say the Trinity has ceased to have the mother in it, you know, I mean, I, I've had that thought myself. And you're always saying that we should, um, that Hinduism, as it were, can rediscover this, but Christianity almost put them back on the path. I don't know about that, but I think, 
among many Christianities, there should be a Hindu Christianity. Put it like that. There should be many Hinduisms and some of the maybe Christian Hinduisms. I think we, we must break the hold over us of, of a certain sort of uh, typology of religions, a certain mode of classifying the religions of the world in this higgledy-piggledy way, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism. Mm-hmm. And this is a completely, completely confused way of, I think we must discover more, more perspicuous modes of classification under types, broad spiritual types. Uh, but it's, it, it's still, uh, I can't, do, uh, I'll have to devote a whole lecture to that theme. To, to uh, what might be called a more non-violent typology. I've, I've spoken on this theme in India, Kathleen. I think existing, I'll give you a, a, a little example of this. All existing typologies are violent typologies. For instance, the great religions of the world. As, as though there are non-great religions of the world. It seems to me monstrous and violent. Or, for instance, uh, the uh, uh, religions of the book. I think this is wrong. Because the, the, the oral traditions of the Aborigines, they, there is a, an oral book. They, they, what is a book? There is a body of, 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 of teaching which is recorded and, and final and passed down. It doesn't have to be written down. So I, I think if, if the word book is to be understood in that extended sense, there is not a religion which is not a religion of the book. So it, it, it's, it's, it's simply a, you know, a way of saying that there, there are the literate religions and the illiterate ones, which is, I think, absurd. The ancient religions of the world, as, as though, how ancient? Religions are timeless. There is all available, ancient. Or the very recent religions, how recent? Then the religions are... So these are all violent or trivializing typologies, and I think they actually generate violence. So this is another, uh, I think, again, part of the Ramakrishna program. Yes, but I think misclassification has needlessly aided this violence. Yes. So at least in that small area, we, we could put things right. We could bring uh, uh, different uh, mystics under one kind of uh, 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 head of religion. Uh, there is something common to the religion of Blake and Ramakrishna and Sunday. They have the same religion. It was very courageous of Blake to say in, in uh, the end of the 18th century, all religions are one. Mm-hmm. And every religion is each nation's reception yes. of the imagination. Yes. And the, the source is one. Yes. It's so obvious when you see it. Yes. It's very uh, unacceptable at that time in the Christian yes. culture. Let me share with you one thought, an example of how the words of a sage, my own guru, I have to end with with with, uh, with thought, my own guru. And this is very important to the theme of, of this lecture. I may have uh, talked about it during my uh, lecture on Ramana, but I never remember what I say about my own guru. In the 1930s, I believe, in Tiruvannamalai, which is the town where Ramana Maharshi lived and taught, there was a, an Islamic conference. Uh, and one of the Maulavis, Islamic theologians, left the conference and decided to visit this Hindu sage. And he had a question to ask of the sage, a question which had troubled Islam for a thousand years in India. 
And he, this is recorded by the diarist. Isn't it very fortunate, Kathleen, that, Kathleen, that some of these sages have had diarists who actually recorded this? Anyway, this, this Maulavi, this theologian, Islam, arrives and sits down in front of Ram. Said, I want, no doubt he asked this question in Tamil because he was from that part. He said, God is without form. Isn't he? He said nothing. And this was taken as agreement. So how can it be right to worship an image? The, the, the Muslim in India has been troubled by this And the Hindu has been troubled by the Muslims being troubled by this. So, so Ramana Maharshi heard him. And I'm going to tell you what he said because those words are words of authority, not just of theory. I'm only a, a, a philosopher. But the sage said to this Islamic theologian, so long as, no, he said, when you realize that you also have no form, then you will understand that he also has no form. So long as you think you have a form, it's all right if your brother thinks that he also has a form. I think this is a staggering answer, theologically. It, can, it certainly does not come from my mind. I cannot have invented it. And the, rec- the diarist records that the questioner was silent. He was not silenced. He, he had food for thought. What that means is this, I think. There's a whole political program there. I wish I could say this to, to Hindus and Muslims in India and Pakistan and everywhere. Do respect for the Hindu Advaitin. God is not only without form, without attribute. He just is. For the Hindu, it should be possible. At least the, my Muslim brother tries to see him without form. He's at least making, I'm not even doing that. And for the Muslim to say, I don't see, if God is made, if man is made in God's image, to and if God is without form, man must also be without form in such sense. If that is God, form man. So the Muslim uh, should say, or the Jew, or the Sikh, or the Arya Samaji, I am not yet, I don't yet have the spiritual illumination to see that I too am without form. So it doesn't matter if my brother, the Hindu, sees him with form. We should learn to live with one another. There is a whole political philosophy there. Of, this is what's called true tolerance. It's the sort of answer with which Jesus, at, 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 the way he dealt with objectors and objections. A kind of inversion of uh, thought and, and, and a stunning of the, the mere intellect by a superior light. I, I, I can't think of a more appropriate example of what has to be done with authority. Yes? Um, one thing which seems to be, to be emerging from what you've been saying this evening is that there's a perfect interdependence or harmony between no-thingness and multiplicity. That the, the diversity of beings and the diversity of religions and the diversity of issues is, among other things, a way for us to be pointed towards the necessity of the ultimate to be beyond 
all of those things. Would that, do you think that would be fair to say? Not just beyond, but as as imaged in all of those things, mm. and beyond in that it's not exhausted by any one set. And nothingness and also self. I, I think this is the, the way I, I would suggest of healing the ancient division between Hinduism and Buddhism. They, they fought about self and not self.